Sound good? Well, hey, it's good to be with you, and I would ask you to grab your Bibles and find Matthew chapter 5, and just let me take a moment to introduce myself. If you don't know who I am, my name is Mark Birch, and I've been here before, so in many ways I feel at home at Central Heights, a friend of Pastor Tim's, don't hold that against me, and uh, he and I have kind of a standing joke that uh, if he ever needs me to come and correct all his false teaching, I'll gladly come and follow up, so he calls me periodically. Uh, anyway, we were texting last night. Uh, he's in Ottawa currently and then headed on to Montreal to spend some time with uh, friends of ours, Patrice and Cindy Nagant, who are the church planning directors for C2C in Quebec. And there's some amazing things happening there, and he's going to get a couple days with them and then I think coming home at the end of the week. So it's great to be with you. Uh, so Matthew chapter 5, we are carrying on in a series that you started at the beginning of uh, July uh, called A Better Way. And we've got two or three verses. We're going to focus in primarily on one of them, but I'd like to read uh, Matthew 5. Uh, 9 to 12, and then we'll dive into it. So in that section of the Beatitudes, you've been walking through them. We get down to verse 9, and it says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. It's a very sobering chunk of scripture. I don't know if you read it and you go, blessed when I'm persecuted, blessed when others revile me and speak evil against me. I'm supposed to rejoice and be glad. So it's a challenging text. So let's pray together and then we'll dive in. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would take the core message of the, of the scriptures, the entire story of the, the Bible is God as a reconciling, peacemaking God who pursued us, who came after us long before uh, we ever thought of pursuing him or even thought of him at all. Uh, the scriptures say when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, while we were powerless, while we were still your enemies, that you planned this whole act of redemption and restoration and that you came, you entered our world through Jesus, you made a way for us to have peace with you and now in turn you've called us to be your agents and ambassadors of reconciliation to the world around us. Lord, it's a daunting task, but we pray that you would empower us and Lord, that there would be even just one concept that lands today. I pray for this congregation. I don't know most of them. These men and women and boys and girls, Father, you know what they're living in right now, the situations where they need to have peace and reconciliation in their personal lives. And certainly, Father, you know on the global scale. So give us wisdom, and I would ask, Lord, that you'd bind up the enemy. We acknowledge there is an enemy who would defeat and discourage what goes on in this room today. So we corporately stand together against him. We hide ourselves behind the cross of Jesus, the finished work of Jesus. We declare this as holy ground, and we ask, Holy Spirit, that you administer to each one of us. I pray, Father, that the words that I speak, that uh, the people would hear what they need to hear, that you would do the work of translation from my lips to their heart, that your spirit would take and give them the message that they need today. So we commit that to you in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to dive in. I've got too much material, which I say that every time I come. Uh, Tim always gives me a challenging text, and then, there, and then it says do it in 20 minutes. And I'm like, yeah, right, you can't do that. But there may be no more sought-after ideal or desire, uh, and yet is so elusive than this whole concept of peace. And I know that you know this. Uh, before you even turn on the nightly news, you already know what you're going to anticipate, whether it's at the local level or at the global level, you anticipate bad news, right? 
You anticipate that you're going to hear about a suicide bomber, a terrorist attack, some military action that's taking place. North Korea has launched another missile. We're spending too much money on defense systems or the latest dictator who's risen to power somewhere in the world. We just simply come to expect that the world is not at peace. Uh, you may be familiar with a, a news agency out of the UK called The Independent. They have a very interesting website. It is called the Global Peace Index. Just Google it and you'll find their website. And you can get on there any day of the year and you can see where global conflict is taking place. What they say to us, in July of 2017, right now as we speak, there are only 10 nations on the planet. Listen carefully. Only 10 nations on the planet who are not in some form of military conflict. 240-some-odd nations and states, only 10 of them are at absolute peace. They rate the safest place to live on Earth, the most dangerous place to live on Earth. Uh, it would be no surprise to you if we asked the question, where is the most dangerous place right now for you and your family to try to make a home? It is in Syria. Of course, none of us are surprised by that. The safest place on the planet? Apparently, it's Iceland. There's no people there, but uh, apparently it's a very safe place. What does it mean for us as Canadians? Canada is known as a safe place. We are a peace-loving, peacekeeping, polite people. If Canadians are nothing else, we are known as being nice on the world stage. Uh, we apologize for being Canadians. We apologize for butting in front of you in line. We apologize for our very existence. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. What does it mean for us as Christians? who are called in our text to be peacemakers. Uh, every Christmas, and my family will mock me for this because I've told this story so many times, but there's a, a Christmas carol, one of the carols that haunts me every time we get to it at Christmas, and we have a version, I think Karen Carpenter singing it, but it's, I heard the bells on Christmas Day. It's Henry Wadsworth Longfellow wrote the words, and then John Coughlin put it to music a couple years later. And it was written in a time of personal turmoil and conflict and national turmoil and conflict. Written 150 years ago, the U.S. was embroiled in the Civil War, which was their bloodiest battle ever. 620,000 soldiers lost their life in that battle, an internal battle, Americans killing Americans. The numbers are staggering. If that war happened today and the same statistically number applied to the population today, it would be 6.2 million soldiers dying. The bloodiest four years in American history. In the midst of this, Longfellow himself married as a young man and his first wife is pregnant and dies as she's having a miscarriage with their first child. Of course, he's grief-stricken. He eventually remarries. He has a second wife. They have six children. They've lost one in childbirth already. And then in the midst of the Civil War, she's giving one of their daughters a haircut, and she trims some of the hair and sticks it into an envelope to keep as a keepsake. And she's sealing that envelope with hot wax, as they did back in the day. And some of that wax drops onto her light cotton dress, and it immediately ignites into fire. And she's engulfed in flames. And Wadworth tries to put that fire out. He throws a rug on her who's too small. He wraps his arms around her. His hands, his arms, his face are burnt, but he can't save his wife and she dies the next morning. That Christmas, he says this in his journal. He, he was a, a, a sort of prolific journaler. I can, uh, how inexpressibly sad are the holidays, the first Christmas without his wife. On the anniversary of, his, of her death the next year, he says, I can make no record of these days. Better leave them wrapped in silence. Perhaps someday God will give me peace. The next Christmas, so second Christmas without his wife, a Merry Christmas, say the children, but it is no more for me. 
And then the following year, his oldest son is wounded severely in battle, and his Christmas journal that year is actually completely blank, and it is silent. But the next year, 1864, he writes that famous poem, I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play, and wild and sweet the words repeat, of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Now, there were seven verses. I'm not going to read them all. But the third one is the one that every year when I hear it, it haunts me. And it says, and in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. You put yourself in a situation and you go, he's buried two wives, he's buried a child, his oldest son is wounded in battle, the nation is coming apart at the seams. You can understand why the guy says there's no such thing as peace on earth. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the sons of God. So many directions the conversation could go. Uh, Definition, what is peace from a biblical point of view? What is the role and relationship of the Christian to the state? In other words, what part should followers of Jesus play in bringing peace to the world? What is our responsibility as the church, and what do we leave to the government? What do we leave to the state? We could and we should talk about our Mennonite Anabaptist history. We have a history of peacemaking. It's written right into our confession of faith. Uh, Looking closer at home, this gets very, very practical. This year, we're celebrating 150 years of confederation, and in many ways, we're going, thank you, God, for the true north, strong and free, and God, keep our land glorious and free. And we might forget that there were 50 nations that lived here before us. And those 50 nations that we call first peoples are struggling to know how to embrace 150 years of what they call colonialism where their land has been stripped away from them and their children have been taken out of their homes and the devastation to their lives and communities and even coming up this next week or two in Vancouver, I don't have the exact dates, is a 10-day First Nations celebration that is sort of an anti-150 year celebration acknowledging the 400 years of history that have gone on of colonialization. We live in the midst of a turmoil, a tumultuous situation. Very practically, you could just simply ask, what does peacemaking look when the driver on the the freeway cuts you off? Uh, They're saying to us that on average every week, one out of three drivers who are in a commute will experience one way, shape, or form road rage. Uh, Or that person who took your pew here in church. Or the neighbor who continues... That neighbor, and I've seen the signs on the sidewalks, that neighbor who continues to let his dog use your front yard as his toilet... What do you do with that person? Or you've gone camping and the loser next door will not turn his music down. What do you do in those situations? Now, remind yourself of the context. Jesus' life and ministry and his emphasis, why did he come? You need to pull out to the the, the 100,000-foot view, if you will. The entire story of the Bible, from cover to cover, is built around the mega theme that life as we see it and know it today is not life as it was intended to be. Let me say it again. That life as we see it and know it today was not how life was intended to be. Uh, Those of you date myself here who remember the movie The Matrix, it's much like that, that a veil has been pulled over eyes and we live in a world of our own making. The enemy has deceived us to think that this is the world as it is, Uh, but it is not that way. In fact, there are only four chapters of the Bible that describe life as it should be. Did you know that? 1,189 chapters in the 66 books from cover to cover, only four of them describe life as it should be. The first two, Genesis 1 and 2, and the last two, Revelation 20 and 21. 
Everything else in between is God's story of trying to get things back to the original glory of creation and the way life should be. We live in the midst of this, what was and what is coming, the already but not yet kingdom. And so God's story, his good story of creation and the crashing down of that ideal, what we call the fall of man, God's plan to restore the world to its original glory, the story of redemption, the reconciling life and death of Jesus Christ, and finally that ultimate hope, the hope of the future coming kingdom when Jerusalem comes down out of the sky, the heavens and the earth are remade and we enter into this fully, uh, this fully orbed kingdom of God that we've been singing about, that every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess. And many knees will bow before him as Lord and Savior, and many other knees will bow before him as their king and their judge. But every knee, make no mistake, will one day bow before the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Of course, the question for this life is, will you bow before him now as your king and as your Lord? And so this struggle has been called various things, the tale of two kings, the tale of two kingdoms, the tale of two cities, two peoples, the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of light. Good and evil, righteousness and rebellion. That's the mega story. And there's so much that could be said here, but we don't have time for every rabbit trail. But just let me make a comment or question. What kingdom are you living in and living for currently? Because the scriptures would tell us that there are really only two choices. And this is where the gospel becomes confrontational. This is where the gospel becomes offensive and even divisive, perhaps, when Jesus says there's only one way to the Father, and there is one kingdom that you need to be part of, and otherwise you are part of the enemy kingdom. Colossians 1 says he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. And how it happens is by God taking the initiative to reconcile us to himself. So a few verses later, he says there in Colossians, for in him, Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by his blood, making peace by the blood of his cross. So just the comment, the question, if you have surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, then the scripture says you have now been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. If you have not surrendered to that king, then the scriptures would say you are an enemy of God, that you are trapped in the kingdom of darkness. It's why the gospel is offensive. The gospel is uh, divisive, because to say to someone you're an enemy of God is not a politically correct statement. I don't know if you've tried that first conversation with people, hey, you're an enemy of God, but just try it. To get back on the topic, we live in a world that is in conflict. I think as believers, particularly in the peaceful West, we forget this, that the world is at war, spiritually speaking. There are two kingdoms, the light and dark, the good and evil. It is the big story, the meta-narrative. It is the classic story that's under every great story that we all love. Every Disney fairy tale is built around this exact story. There's something beautiful, so creation. It's being threatened by an antagonist. Someone's coming against us. The hero must come because we're not able to rescue ourselves. And so typically it's a damsel in distress. The guy on the white horse comes running in and they all live happily ever after. And we leave feeling satisfied. It's a good story. And if it doesn't end that way, we leave angry. Stupid writer, stupid story, don't like the ending. Why? Because it's hardwired into us that God will restore and redeem and rescue. So all of the great epic movies and great epic novels are built around this very theme of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. It's hardwired into our psyche. 
Matthew, more than any other gospel, was consumed with the kingdom of God. He wrote to a Jewish audience. He introduces it. I'll just flip through a number of verses, and if you want to just write them down or follow along, just think of it. In chapter 3, we meet John the Baptist, and he begins to preach, and his message is this, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. Kingdom language. There's a new king coming to town. After Jesus' baptism, he begins his public ministry, and there in chapter 4, verse 17, he, begins to pre- he began to preach, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He chooses his disciples, he carries on proclaiming the gospel all throughout the region of Galilee, and verse 23, it says, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And this whole message here, the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 to 7, is a descriptor of what life in the kingdom should look like. That at the heart and soul of this message is what life as a different people. You're not Canadians anymore. You're citizens of a new kingdom. And you rule and reign and you live in the glories of God's kingdom by living your life in these ways. At the heart and soul of the Lord's prayer in the midst of this is this desire. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Matthew 6, 33. Seek first the kingdom And all of these extra things, like food and clothing and shelter and housing, God will look after all that. Seek first his kingdom. Chapter 7, verse 21, you want proof that you're a kingdom citizen? Do the will of the Father, is what it says. Uh, Later in chapter 10, he is sending out his disciples, and he tells them, go out and preach the kingdom of heaven. And then uh, that famous text in chapter 16 where Jesus says, I will build my church, the very next verse he says to them, and I've given you the keys to the kingdom. I will do the building of my church, disciples. Make no mistake about it. It is my church. But I'm giving you the keys. What you bind on earth will be bound on earth. What you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So you have the keys to establishing the kingdom of God. It is a theme through the New Testament. Now, just, I know I'm on a long tangent here, and you might be wondering where I'm going. Just stay with me. Stay with me. It is the theme of the Scriptures. It's the theme of the New Testament. There are some people who like to pit the Apostle Paul against Jesus and to say, oh, their theologies were very different, and uh, Paul's view of salvation was very different than Jesus' view of salvation. I think it's, it's wrong. They've only done a cursory reading of Paul's ministry if they say that. Uh, Jesus, after his resurrection, appears to the disciples, Acts 1, verse 3. He presents himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days. And what does he talk about? The kingdom of God. Now think about this. In his earthly life, before his crucifixion, these Jewish followers assumed that he was going to set up his kingdom, earthly reign, political reign. They had been hoping and praying all through the Old Testament that the Messiah would come, and in their minds, it was a military, political, national state. He's going to set up his kingdom. He's going to kick Rome out. They were living in occupied territory. You know this. And when Jesus is crucified, all those hopes come crashing down. The one that we thought is going to be king over this new kingdom is now dead. And then he rises from the dead, and what's the first thing he talks about? The kingdom of God. What he's saying to them is the kingdom of God is not what you expect it to be. It is not a military kingdom. It is not a political kingdom. It is not the rule and reign by force. It is like the mustard seed or like yeast that grows from within and takes over the culture. This is the kingdom of God. This is the kingdom of heaven. Philip picks up the theme, chapter 8 of the book of Acts. And they believed Philip as he preached the good news. The good news what? The good news about the kingdom of God. 
And Paul, over and over and over and over again, so don't let anyone tell you Paul and Jesus didn't agree. And I'll just choose one verse as a summary. When he goes to Ephesus in Acts 19, he goes into the synagogue. That was his classic practice, every city he went to. And he begins to speak for three months, speaking boldly, and he reasons and persuades them about what? About the kingdom of God. The rule and reign of King Jesus. So let me just throw an ad out here. C2C is your church planting network. We're hoping to plant and see gospel-centered communities established from coast to coast, from Victoria Island to Newfoundland, and that in every neighborhood, the gospel of the kingdom would be planted and raised up. We chose our name from a messianic psalm, Psalm 72, that speaks of not only an earthly king, but a coming king, a son of David who will rule and reign, and it was the verse, just by... uh, coincidence that the fathers of confederation chose as the motto for Canada. Psalm 72, 8, and he will have dominion from sea to sea and from the rivers to the ends of the earth. And that is our hope and prayer, and I hope it is your hope and prayer, that we would be able to see the day when King Jesus, literally his rule and reign is seen from coast to coast, north and south and east and west. It's not my notes, that was free. Don't count the time on that one. The kingdom of God is the big theme in this text. So what does life in the kingdom look like, and how does a citizen of God's kingdom conduct themselves? And this is the challenging topic, because as children of God, we must acknowledge we live in two worlds simultaneously. The kingdom of God is here. It is among us. It is growing up within us. And we also live in the kingdom of the world. And so the city of God and the cities of the world. Some have called it the city of God, the city of Satan. Uh, Jesus prayed for us in his high priestly prayer that we would be in the world but not of the world. Uh, Robert Lithicum, in a book entitled City of God, City of Satan, says this, We are called by God to be his community, both the foretaste of the kingdom and its present embodiment. All that the city will know of God's kingdom, it will know from our life together, our witness, and our commitment to the city's broken, hurting, and poor. You see, ultimately we know this. If you've been in the church at any length of time, if you've been a follower of Jesus, that we live for a different city. We're looking for a heavenly city. We are citizens of a different land. Uh, So many texts speak of us being aliens and strangers and exiles. Uh, There was an old song we sang when I was a kid, this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. Anybody remember that? All the old people in the room remember that. Philippians 3 tells us our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus. But the reality is, our citizenship is in heaven, but we live in this world today. And we have to do life in this world today. And it is an age-old debate. It is thousands of years old debate, specifically in the New Testament era, probably the most prominent debate 1,600 years ago, the fall of Rome. If you know your history, Rome was a pagan empire, and then after 300 years of Christianization after the Christ, the nation, the empire of Rome was declared officially at around 320 AD to be a Christian empire, and the emperor himself embraces faith in Christ. Uh, 90, 80, 90 years later, Rome falls. The barbarians invade, and in the year 410, Rome falls, and the Christians are asking themselves questions. How can this possibly be? How can it be that after 900 years of this horrible reign, and now the nation is officially, quote-unquote, Christian, even our emperor embraces Christian faith, and yet, Lord, where have you, you've allowed the barbarians to invade, and what should our response be? 
And the debate was this, should we respond in like form? Should we retaliate? And some believers were saying, you know what, these kingdom of God values just simply won't work in a time of war. If we cannot retaliate, if we're supposed to pray for our enemies, if we're supposed to seek reconciliation, this will never work. And so someone sends a letter to a guy named Augustine, you heard of him, St. Augustine, and says, what's your opinion on this? Can the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan live together in what should be our response? And Augustine's argument was exactly the opposite of what Christians were saying. He says this, give us such husbands and wives, parents and children, such masters and slaves, such kings and judges, such taxpayers and tax collectors as the Christian religion has taught that men should be, and then let them dare say that it is adverse to the state's well-being. Rather, let them no longer hesitate to confess that this doctrine, if it were obeyed, would be the salvation of the empire. In other words, he says, if you're a child of the kingdom, you should be the best child of the state as well. If you are living for the glory of King Jesus in your daily life, you should be the best Canadian citizen there possibly is because you're living for a different king. Are you guys with me? Or do, they, do they respond? I think they're sleeping. Let's, uh, thanks, John. I knew I'd get that from John. Somebody wave a white hanky, whatever. In other words, we should be the best citizens in the earthly realm. The principles of godly living, of kingdom living, of kingdom values should make us the best possible neighbors, employers, employees, citizens, activists, and why? Because the principles of the kingdom of God are written for not only our flourishing, but the flourishing of the nation. Let me get really, really practical. Let me just bring it right down to the, 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 the daily life. One of my favorite stories, recent history here in Canada. Some of, you heard of a church called Southland Church in Steinbeck, Manitoba. Anybody heard of this? God's doing some amazing things in Steinbeck, and it's been built on a prayer movement of the last 20 years. And in little tiny Steinbeck, there's 3,500 people gathering in a church. And the most amazing thing is on their monthly prayer nights, 2,000 people packing into an auditorium to lift up the nation in prayer. So that's the context. So Ray Dirksen is the pastor there, and he tells the story of how he gets a call from a businessman in town who wants to come meet with him. And he says, I have this kind of constant rolling my eyes. Oh, shoot, what have we done now? We've offended somebody. You know, there's no parking. They're parking all over the neighbor's yards. They're offending people. What's the guy going to say? And so the guy comes in to meet with him, and he says, you know what? Uh, I just want to set your mind at ease. This is a very positive conversation. He's kind of like, he's like, I'd actually like to make a donation to your church. It's like, okay, well, this is an interesting conversation. He says, you know who I am. I run a small manufacturing company here in town. I've got 50, 60 employees. It's not a big company. But he says, I need to tell you something about the men who attend your church. 17 of my employees attend your church. And in the last two to three years, I don't know what has happened in these men's lives, but I will tell you that they're turning my company upside down. Since these men have gotten whatever it is that you're giving them, the pornography has come down out of the lunchroom, the language on the shop floor is completely different, and mostly work productivity is going through the ceiling, and we have had our most productive and profitable year ever, and I want to give a portion of that profit to you, and slides an envelope across the table. The business leader's not a Christian business leader. So he leaves the envelope, he goes to his meeting, and he's thinking, whatever, maybe 10, 12,000. When he opens the envelope, eventually it's $250,000. And you say the impact that 17 godly men had on a little company because they were living out the values of the kingdom. That's what Jesus is talking about. So, many will be well aware in this audience 
that denominationally, if you weren't aware of it, you're sitting in a Mennonite Brethren Church. Surprise. Um, we have, as a family and a tribe, a position on warfare, on bearing of arms, of our response to conflict, military conflict, and our, our confession of faith reads this way. We believe that God in Christ reconciles people to himself and to one another, making peace through the cross. The church is a fellowship of redeemed people living by love. Our bond with other believers of Jesus transcends all racial, social, and national barriers. We love that. We're equal. The ground at the cross is level. There's no male, no female, no educated, non-educated. It doesn't matter the color of your skin. It doesn't matter where you grew up. At the foot of the cross, the ground is equal. We all stand as sinners before a holy God. And God, in his reconciling work, brings us together. It's the recipe for world peace. And then it goes on to say this. Believers seek to be agents of reconciliation in all relationships, to practice love of enemies as taught by Christ, and to be peacemakers in all situations. We view violence in its many different forms as contradictory to the new nature of the Christian. We believe that the evil and inhumane nature of violence is contrary to the gospel of love and peace. And in times of national conscription or war, we believe we are called to give alternate service where possible. Alleviating suffering, reducing strife, and promoting justice are ways of demonstrating Christ's love. Now this series is called A Better Way. And it's a better way that Jesus is calling us to, and the whole of the Sermon on the Mount outlines this better way, but I would also like to suggest to you that it is an absolutely impossible task. Absolutely impossible. Let's admit it. Jesus says later in this, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you won't make it into the kingdom of heaven. And I don't know if you know about the scribes and Pharisees, they were the best of the best of the best. So unless we can surpass them, you don't even get a door into the kingdom. This is an impossible task. He fleshes it out a little bit later in chapter 5, some of the specifics. Turn the other cheek, don't resist, don't resist evil. Someone sues you for your cloak, you give them your tunic as well. They want you to go one mile with them, go two miles. Pray for your enemies. And what Jesus is really calling us to in light of our short time is this focus on making reconciliation and being ambassadors of peace. So verse 9 is where we're going to just hone in for these last few minutes. Because in order to understand the role of the peacemaker, we need to agree on what peace actually is. And it's used in the New Testament in many ways that we would use it today. It's used as a greeting. We don't do that so much, but they would say peace to you or grace to you. It was just a, a form of greeting. It, it did refer to military peace when the nation was at rest from a military point of view. It could also simply mean to taking a nap, being at rest, like being at ease. You're peaceful. So it's used in all those ways. But predominantly and prioritively, it is a, a translation of the Old Testament concept of shalom. And that may be a word that you've heard in church circles. The Hebrew word for peace is shalom. The problem with the word shalom is that we have no English equivalent to translate it that is, does it justice. The English language just can't do it. It carries with it far more than just this idea of no conflict. One commentator puts it this way, shalom is a state of wholeness and completeness possessed by a person or a group that includes good health, prosperity, security, justice, and deep spiritual contentment. That's a giant enchilada. That says a lot. Wholeness and completeness, health, prosperity, security, justice, and a deep sense of spiritual contentment. And you go, who has that? Shalom. 
It's probably one of the best known words in the Old Testament and New Testament alike. Uh, One of the favorites is Jeremiah 29. Many of you will be familiar with it. Verse 11, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare. Right there is the word shalom. Plans for peace or prosperity, some translations say. Not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. And just earlier, a couple verses, he had said, but seek the welfare or the prosperity or the peace, the shalom of the city to where I have sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare, its peace, its prosperity, you will find your welfare, your peace, your prosperity. And if it prospers, you too will prosper. Now we look at that and we go, isn't that awesome? The Lord's giving peace to these people. Remember the context. They were prisoners of war. They had been dragged out of Jerusalem and hauled 900 miles across the desert over to Babylon. It's like if Saskatchewan invades today and drops us in swift current. Like seriously, we're living in the land of exile. That's a joke. Sorry, I offend you Saskatchewan people. Bradwell's a good guy, but you know, whatever. They are living as prisoners of war. And what it says to us is shalom has nothing to do with my circumstances. Because if as a prisoner of war under Babylonian rule, the people of God could experience shalom in that circumstance, and certainly in the circumstances we find ourselves in, shalom is available. It is for the individual, it is for the community, our flourishing, our well-being. And James talks about the results and the implications of peaceful living, and he starts by contrasting it to its opposite. It's deeply personal, intimate. It is down to grassroots, and he says this, where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. Well, that just makes sense. If we're driven along by jealousy and selfish ambition, there is going to be disorder. But... The wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Shalom. The most important perspective about Jewish concept of shalom was this, you cannot have it without having peace with God. Peace, shalom on the horizontal level, and it's a beautiful picture of the cross, must happen first on the vertical stave that Jesus, God through Jesus, is reconciling us to himself, and now on the horizontal stave. Colossians 1 referred thus to us, that he was reconciling to himself through his blood on the cross. Romans 5 says, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God. So that word peace, shalom, is critical. The second half of it, peacemaker, The compound is important. It's only used here just this once in the New Testament. Matthew is the only author who quotes Jesus in using this word, and it is not passive, but is active. This is critical. It is not sitting idly by, but it is engaging. It is moving toward conflict. It is placing yourself in danger's way and hoping to bring reconciliation. And as the context reveals to us, peacemaking can be a very dangerous calling. Think this through. To be a peacemaker means that you enter into conflict. That's a dangerous place to be. You might be persecuted for your righteous way of living, Jesus says. People will revile you and they will speak evil against you because you're messing with their disorder. You're trying to bring order out of chaos. You're trying to bring peace. But you're in good company, Jesus says, because the prophets before you took a lot of flack and then you think of Jesus' life himself 
the ultimate peacemaker. He is called our peace, our wall breaker, our bridge builder. Isaiah 9, unto you a child is born. The government will be on his shoulders. His name is Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. What? The Prince of Peace. That is his name. He is our peace. But remind yourself, Jesus' peacemaking got him killed. Remind yourself of that. Making peace assumes there's conflict and adversity and brokenness, and it is an active phrase. It is not passive. It steps in as an agent of reconciliation. And we typically have two responses humanly to a conflict or a difficult situation. It is either fight or flight. Fight or flight. Either we raise our voices and we raise our fists, we make a conflict out of it, or we run away and we hide and we hope it goes away and we ignore it. But the, the Lord Jesus chose a third option. Not to fight and not to flight or run away, but to enter in a third way, a better way, to bring peace. And just remind yourself again, that big theological background, the fall, uh, creation, fall, redemption, Jesus enters our world, he takes our sin and shame, all the songs we sing these days are around this. He carries it on himself, he forgives, he heals, he restores. When we were powerless, he takes the lead. When we were dead, he reconciles us. When we were enemies, he comes seeking after us. It's all on God. And Romans 5 says, God shows his love while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. In other words, he didn't wait for us to make the first step. How often have you heard someone saying in a conflict situation, well, I'm willing, but they're not. If they would just come to me, I'll make peace, but it's on them. They offended me, they can come to me. And Jesus takes the initiative. He doesn't wait for us. While we were his enemies, he came to us. And here is where peacemaking gets so intensely personal and practical. Because if we understand it rightly, we'll understand it's a very controversial subject. It's politically charged. It's dangerous. Not just to keep the peace, but to make peace. And I wanted to throw up a short video. Not throw up, but put up a, uh, a video. Uh, you may have heard of a new uh, initiative called Building Leaders for Peace. Uh, just this last year, a group of North American young adults went into Turkey right on the Syrian border to meet with Turkish leaders and with Syrian leaders and to talk as young adults about being a generation that would make peace in our world. So just watch this short clip. Hmm. Wow. Yeah, so it is, that, that's inspiring. The organizers, when they put out the application and invite these North American young adults to literally, I just said Syria is the most dangerous place on the planet, to go to Syria. They said the application was like none other application they'd ever put out in their life because they had to say on the application, you're signing a disclaimer that basically says, I may not come home. We cannot guarantee your physical safety. You may die on this short-term mission. And yet they had over 75 applicants for just 25 spots. There's a hunger in this generation to say we want to make a difference in our world. And I'm personally challenged by our confessional language about love and non-resistance. I'll just, true confessions, was not raised as a Mennonite brethren, grew up in a Baptist pastor's home. My earliest childhood memories were my dad doing funerals for Vietnam vets coming home in boxes. And as we've been adopted into this family these last 30 years, this continuous struggle with this passive language versus active language, and it was actually this February, sitting through pastor credentialing orientation session where a penny dropped for me when Dr. Bruce Gunther was saying to us, we are technically not pacifist by definition, but we are peacemakers by definition. 
that we would actively enter into the fray and that the first Anabaptists were not talking primarily about a political or a military battle. They were talking about killing other Christians. It was the Reformation Day and the Protestants were killing the Catholics and then the Protestants began to turn on one another and the Lutherans were bombing, not bombing, but killing the Anabaptists and the Anabaptists were fighting back in the early days. And then they finally, in reading the scriptures, said, we cannot kill our brothers and sisters over theological differences. What a beautiful position to be part of this family. And even in light of what God's doing with C2C, I don't know if you're aware of this, but we're working currently with 29 networks and denominations. And many of them look at the Mennonite brethren sort of like Switzerland, where the neutral people in the middle that somehow can bring these disparate from charismatics to Presbyterians to you name it, all these evangelicals and various streams to come together and work at the table around the gospel of Jesus and to put secondary issues aside. Peacemaking, what do we know about being a peacemaker and its implications? We know that a peacemaker is a character and a quality of winsomeness and courage. You, you can't be quarrelsome and be a peacemaker. You can't be a divisive person. That's a poison to anybody. A pugnacious person, I love that word, cannot be an elder in the church. It means just an argumentative, quarrelsome person. Never put them in church leadership. Actively, it is not licking, letting issues rest. I, I loved Carlin Weinhauer saying in this, Matthew 5 and Matthew 18, he had this phrase, if you know, you go. If you know, you go. You take Matthew 5, Matthew 18. In one set, you have offended your brother. Go to that brother. In the other text, your brother has offended you. You go to them. You know, you go. If you're the offender or if you are the offended, in either case, Matthew 5, Matthew 18 says, you go. You go and you try to make it right. You enter in. You don't let it rest. And the key question that the topic raises are the bigger questions. Have we recognized our personal relationship and position with God outside of Jesus Christ? Because here's where the penny lands. I don't think until we come to terms with our rebellious heart, our rebellious state towards the Creator, what the Scripture tells us that we were dead in our dark heart and that left to ourselves and left to our own ways, if I was left to myself, and I know this, this is not to offend you, but if you were left to yourself, we end up spiraling into darkness, not spiraling into a better life. And left to ourselves, this is where we are. But most of North America doesn't really believe that. They think that we're inherently good people and that just left to ourselves, society will get better. And until we see ourselves the way a holy God sees us, we will not really grasp the glory of salvation or the message of reconciliation. That how glorious it was that when I was a sinner, when I was dead in my sins, when I was rebellious, when I was still literally figuratively shaking my fist at God or just ignoring him and apathetic, that he took the initiative to chase after me. Isn't that glorious? Amen. Jonathan Edwards said this, the only thing that we contribute to our salvation is the sin that makes it necessary. That's all we contribute. We contribute sin and Jesus does everything else. And he comes after us and he reconciles us and then he says, and now you go and do likewise. You can't do it on your own. You will not be a peacemaker and a reconciler if you just try to pull yourself up by the bootstraps. It's humanly impossible, but because Jesus accomplished it and you fall on your face in worship as the one who's been rescued from sin and death and rebellion, even when you were in the thick of it and you didn't deserve it and he didn't wait for you to take the first step, but then you take it and you give it to others. It's not rocket science, but it's incredibly difficult. So many texts that we could look at don't have the time. 
Dang it, Tim, please give me longer next time. There may be no stronger testimony of the kingdom of God than how we exercise lives of peace. Your series is entitled, A Better Way. And I would say that maybe you should put under it a subtitle, An Impossible Way. Jesus, as you unpack the Sermon on the Mount, you will see that there's just no way that you can live up to this, but there was one human being who did perfectly live this out, and his name was Jesus. In Isaiah 53, when he was oppressed and afflicted, he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And he leaves this example and he compels us to follow in his steps. 2 Corinthians 5, the love of Christ constrains me, controls me, boxes me in. We've concluded this, that the one has died for all and therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live, that's you and me, if you're breathing in the room, might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised again. And then he goes on to say, Christ reconciled us to himself. And then look at this, gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is Christ, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Think of that. Your enemy, your neighbor, whoever it is you're in conflict with, not counting their sin against them. And entrusting to us the message of reconciliation, therefore we are ambassadors. In a violent world filled with military conflict, terrorism, family conflict, neighborhood skirmishes, what is our Christ-like response? And if we're truly emulating Jesus, then we won't know it will not make sense to the world. It is a different way, an impossible way, a third way. I can't do this, you can't do this, but Jesus did it. He accomplished everything needed for us as enemies to be made right, and we emulate his life. And he can and he will, by his spirit, empower us to make peace. So I'm going to ask you to stand with me. The worship team is going to come. We're going to sing a song to close. But as we close, I would like you to read together with me a very famous writing by St. Francis of Assisi. And so we'll just read it out loud together and just follow along. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. O divine master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, It is in dying that we are born again to eternal life.